Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above, the, above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I want to welcome you again to Sacred City Church. I'm one of the pastors here. And before I preach uh, the word of God to you this morning, I want to take a minute and once again thank everyone who made all of last weekend's 10-year anniversary festivities happen. Thank you. Um, I want to, yeah, go ahead. You can clap. <laughs> I want to thank Ben and the rest of Sacred City staff and the celebration team. They put in so much time um, praying about, dreaming, prepping, planning, and executing what I thought was the best weekend of our church's existence. Uh, the members' dinner Friday night and the outdoor gathering on Sunday morning were both outstanding. Uh, for the first time in the history of our church, um, between those two gatherings, we had over 600 people worshiping the name of Jesus in our city, and so it was pretty outstanding. Yep. And so just thank you for all the hard work and everything you put in to make that uh, weekend turn out awesome. God has been so good to us these past 10 years, and I can't wait to step into the next 10 years this weekend and just ask God to do uh, more in us and through us over this next decade. So for everyone who helped out last week and made it what it was, thank you so much. Uh, I also want to tell you about something that I am really excited about. For the past 10 years, I have essentially been the only full-time teaching pastor on staff. This has limited our abilities to provide extra teaching, training, and Bible studies for our church outside of Sunday morning. Um, there's obviously only so much that I can do while also uh, leading the church. And one of the greatest needs of our church is for us to continue to grow in our understanding of the Word of God and how the Word of God applies to the issue of our day. If you haven't noticed, the past few years has revealed great divisions in our society and great divisions in the church. And it's important for Christians to understand how the Bible relates to the issues of today. Does the Bible have anything to say about socialism and totalitarianism that's on the rise in our society? Yes, it does. Does the Bible have anything to say about critical theory and critical race theory that's on the rise in our society? Yes, 
It does. Does, does the Bible speak to you know, democracy? Does the Bible speak to the separation of church and state or the relation between the church and the state? Yes, it does. The Bible speaks to all of these things, but it's really hard um, for us to uh, get everybody together and teach and train and all these things, especially in this culture where we're so informed by our news outlets. And so what we want to do, well, I'm just gonna tell you, we want our people to be more biblically informed. And so to that end, we have hired Pastor Rob Spikstra to be a full-time discipleship pastor here at the church. So you can clap for that. That's a big one. So Rob, if you'd stand up, if Rob would stand up. If you don't know who Rob is, Rob is right down here. Yep. When Rob and I were were talking about the goal, the dream, the vision of his position, I said this, Rob, your one goal is to raise the biblical literacy of our church. That's your, I'm like, you make the job description, let's accomplish that, right? So right now we're prayerfully discerning the best ways to do that. It's probably going to look like having more men's and women's discipleship days, conferences on marriage, family, and other things, Bible studies, new curriculum for missional communities, and who knows what else. To be honest, Rob's job description is the best job description in the world. Rob, teach Sacred City the Bible. All right, what a joy. So what do we need from you as the church? Well, first, please pray for Rob and Tamara as Rob makes this transition on staff. Also, pray for us to know the best way to execute this vision. Um, lots of opportunities, lots of options, and we want to be efficient. We want to keep us on mission. Uh, we've been successfully making disciples for a, a decade. We don't want to get off of that. We just want to make better disciples in this next decade. Uh, also, we want the goal to be accomplished. We want our people to understand the Bible and how it applies to current issues of our day. We want the biblical literacy to be raised of our church. So please pray for that. And lastly, please continue to give to the church, right? We want Rob to have a paycheck. That's it. You know what I mean? Like, hopefully it's just not one month. Sorry, right? Uh, so, yeah, no. Your faithfulness to us in your giving and to God in your giving is what enables us to pay our salaries. And so without your faithfulness, without your tithes, without your offerings, we literally can't do this. And so we ask you to continue to, to give. And if you're, if you're not giving, to follow Jesus by, um, by giving to his mission in the, in the world and in the church. So thank you for that. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into our sermon this morning. Father, we thank you for just the whole setting of this worship gathering this morning. We thank you for being a gracious God who calls us in our deep need. You call us in to worship and enjoy you. We couldn't do that on our own. We can't do that without the saving work, the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. And so we lean into that this morning. And now... Father, we come to you and we ask that uh, you would help us through the power of your spirit hear and understand and believe and apply your word. Would you even think through my mind and speak through your and speak through my vocal cords that it would be your words and not my words this morning, Father? That you would direct my thoughts, you would direct my words, you would direct my heart, my attitude, that your people would hear your voice. <clears throat> would you do all of this? For your glory and our great joy, in Jesus' name I say, amen. <clears throat> All right, well, we are beginning a new series today.
Um, over the past 10 years, one of the most common questions we have received while doing ministry is this. Why does Sacred City worship the way we do on Sunday morning? What is up with all the formalities, the public reading, the reciting? And as some have said, what's up with the chanting? Why do you chant? Apparently, reading things together off a screen is equivalent to chanting. Well, this sermon series is all about helping you answer those questions, okay? Now, we want everyone to know why we do what we do on a Sunday morning for at least two reasons, two very important reasons. One, we want everyone to have an understanding of the biblical meaning and importance of what we do on Sunday morning. We want you to see from Scripture why we do what we do. We didn't just make it up on our own. Um, as I've been saying over this whole year, our vision for this year has been one of gospel renewal. Well, one of the ways we experience spiritual decline is forgetting why we do what we do and just go through the motions. We're never going to experience gospel renewal by going through the motions of worship. We need to know why we do what we do each week, and we need to know why, uh, where it's at in the scripture, how scripture forms what we do each week. The second reason we need to understand why we do what we do is so that you can communicate to your guests and to your children as you invite them to worship with us why we do what we do, right? You guys are missionaries. You're doing a great job of inviting your friends, inviting your neighbors, inviting your family members, and you can bring them in here, and many times you can bring them in here and not tell them what you're, they're going to experience, and then when they ask you, why did you do that, you might not have a biblical answer for it. So we worship the way we do because we believe the Bible teaches us to and our service tells the gospel story each and every week. When your visitors have questions, it's usually a lot more convenient for you to answer those questions. They're far less likely to come to an elder and ask, why did you guys do that in service? They're gonna ask you on the way home and we want you to have a good answer for your guests and for your kids. So what we're gonna do each week for the next eight weeks is we're going to take one aspect of the service and we're going to teach you why we do it that way. This week, I need to do a little bit of preliminary and introductory work to get us started, but then I'm going to finish up by explaining why we begin our services each week with the pastoral welcome. So let me begin by answering the most preliminary question. What are we actually doing here this morning when we gather together? Well, that answer, the answer to that question is answered from Psalm 148 that we heard read in our scripture. We are gathered here this morning to do what we were created to do, and that is to praise the Lord. Psalm 148 tells us that God has created everything to praise the Lord, to declare his glory from angels to sun and moon, to the great sea creatures, to rocks and hills, to kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. The psalmist is telling us 
everything that God has created was created to worship him and that worship is meant to be expressed in accordance with our nature. We are all to worship God in distinct ways. Whales don't sing the doxology, nor are they supposed to, but we do. Mountains bring glory to God just by being there. You see them and go, whoa, and God gets the glory for that. But we've been made in the image of God. We've been made distinct from all other creation. And so we need to ask ourselves, how are we to worship God when we're all together? Now, most of the time, we answer that question intuitively without even thinking about it, and our answers are usually formed by our early life experiences or our first experiences in a church. If you grew up in a non-denominational charismatic service like I did, you grew up worshiping God a certain way. It was informal, it was loud, it was exciting, it was a little wild each week, you didn't quite know what you were gonna expect, but it was gonna be fun. And worship was highly emotional. You kind of came in hoping to get that emotional pick-me-up, hoping to experience God a certain way in your soul or feelings or emotions or whatever. But if you grew up Catholic or Roman Catholic, your worship service might have been really foreign to you. You didn't really know what was going on. You just showed up. You say the same things week in and week out. You sing the same hymns. You listen to a 15-minute homily that you didn't really understand, right? There were some smells and bells going on in there too. And then you took the Eucharist. Didn't really know what that was about, but you know, you got it, you ate it, and you left. And there it is. Now back to normal life. Your worship was highly ritualistic with very little emotion involved. It wasn't about feeling. It was just about showing up and doing but how often do you ask, and, and listen, those, that's, spec, there's a, that's a spectrum, right? You grew up, you know, Southern Baptist, or you grew up Anglican, or you grew up, you're, wherever you experience God, or if you just grew up a hippie, and you just went out in nature and just walked the trails and picked mushrooms, and you experienced that, that's how you think worship is, right? <laughs> However you grew up, that's usually what you think of worship, you know, worship is meant to be like that. The question we need to ask ourselves is, does the Bible itself actually speak to how we are to worship God when we come together? To say it a different way, has God told us how he wants to be worshiped? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, he has. I want us to open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to spend most of our time in that text of Scripture this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read together. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the first thing I need to do for us today is most of the time when you've heard this, uh, when you've read this scripture or you've heard it preached in a church, more than likely you understood it and it was taught from an individualistic perspective. God speaking to you personally about how you need to worship God personally, that you are to present your body as a living sacrifice, your mind is to be transformed, you need to be holy and acceptable, don't be conformed to this world, and you're thinking, yeah, I need to resist the pull of the culture, and this is about me. The problem with that interpretation, can it, can it speak to you personally? Absolutely. But this, we're not reading from the book of you today. This is not the book of Justin, okay? This is the book of Romans. Paul writing to the church in Rome, This was Paul teaching a gathered people, the the church of God, how they were to rightly worship him, okay? When you come together, this is what your worship is for. This is what your worship should do. This is what your worship should look like. And he really says, do it like this and not like that. So when you come together, this is what it should look like, all right? Now, what I wanna do first is drill it down in two words, Paul says, this is your spiritual worship. This is how to worship me. This is your spiritual, or this is how to worship God. This is your spiritual worship. And I don't say this too often, but I don't really like the ESV. And I don't even think the ESV liked the ESV interpretation because they put a little footnote under the word spiritual or above the word spiritual. You can go down your notes and you can see that they didn't really know how to translate that word very well, Right? Paul here is telling the church in Rome how to worship. The ESV says, which is your spiritual worship? I'm not sure they, you know, what they were trying to get across here, but the actual word, here it is, the Greek word for spiritual is logikos, logikos. Now, you can probably already hear where we get, that's where we get our word logical from. So they translated logikos as spiritual, and we get our word logical from it. Many translations translate that word as reasonable. The NIV translated as reasonable. So Paul says, this is your reasonable worship or reasonable service, right? So what Paul is telling us, listen, when we get together to worship God, God wants to be worshiped in a way that is rational, reasonable, and logical. It is not to be a spiritual free-for-all. It should make sense. We should use our head. There is a sense where people, some, some churches want to check their minds at the door and come in and kind of experience a spiritual connection with God. That is not the way God wants to be worshiped. God wants to be worshiped through the mind that he gave us. This is why Jesus said, we should love the Lord our God with all our mind. He doesn't say, you know, your mind's not important anymore. We just want to be about all about the spirit. No, 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 no. Our worship should be reasonable, should be logical, should be rational. Now, that's that first word, spiritual worship. Rational, logical, reasonable. Worship, the Greek word for worship there is latria, and it's where we get the word liturgy from. Liturgy means order of service what you do in a worship gathering. Now, 
All churches have a liturgy, whether they say it or not, whether they call themselves liturgical or not. All services have a liturgy. Some are just more informal than others. The churches I grew up, you knew the liturgy. The music played, there was two fast songs and then three slow songs, or if we wanted to mix it up, three fast songs and two slow songs, then the announcements, and then the offering, and then the sermon, and then the altar call. Week in and week out, even though they said we're not liturgical, that was the shape of service. That was the order of service, week in and week out. So liturgy is the public way a church worships God. But I want you to see what Paul says here in Romans 12, 1 through 2. He tells us that our worship must be holy and acceptable. Holy and acceptable to God. That implies that there are ways to worship that are not holy and therefore not acceptable to God. He goes on in verse two to say, so he's do this, not that, right? Worship God in holy and acceptable ways, not like this. Like what? Here it is. Do not be conformed to this world, world there means age. It doesn't just mean physical, flesh, normal world that we live in. This world means age. Think of the spirit of the age or think of the culture. Don't let your worship be conformed to the culture, look, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What Paul is saying here is our public worship together should be countercultural transformational. It should not go with the flow of the culture. It should go against the culture. It should be formative for us. It should be different from the ways of the world. And if we consistently worship God in holy and acceptable ways, our minds will be transformed and we will be able to, quote, discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That means we'll be able to live and discern the right way to live in accordance to God's ways. Our, our, the way that we worship affects the way that we live our day-to-day lives. It affects who we become in our day-to-day life. So two big things I want us to see here. Number one, God wants to be worshiped in a certain way. That worship must be holy and acceptable to God and rational, okay? Second thing, the way we worship forms us. If we worship like the world, will be conformed to the, earth, to the world, okay? If we worship like God tells us to, we will be transformed to his image. What we do on Sunday morning, this is big, what we do on Sunday morning isn't just expressive, it's also formative. So what we're doing this morning, we're not just getting, so let's say, let me say it like this. If you're a baseball player, What you do on game day is you express yourself. You get out there on game day and you express everything that you've been practicing all week. You you go out there and you perform the best that you can, right? That's, many people think of Sunday morning as like game day for Christians where we express ourselves to God. It's not. It's far more like practice. 
Practice is meant to be formative. I'm throwing that ball over and over. I'm learning how to turn two. I'm learning how to swing and how to bat. And what's meant to happen is I'm being formed in a certain way. I'm getting certain habits, a certain liturgy, a certain shape, so then I can express myself when game time comes. Sunday morning is more like baseball practice or batting practice than it is game day. Game day is when you leave here today and now you gotta go live it. Now you gotta go express it. Now you gotta go see what it looks like to live all of life to the glory of God. So worship isn't, when we come together on Sunday, isn't just you expressing your love and devotion to God. It's also meant to form us into a certain type of person. A person that looks more like Jesus. So what this means for us is that all of us, every human being, whether you worship God or not, you are a liturgical creature. Now what this means, being a liturgical creature means that your life will necessarily take a certain shape around what you worship. You can't help it. And it also works in the opposite direction. So your habits and practice and your liturgies will shape who you are and what you love the most. Think of it like this. If you worship money, if money is where you tap the real meaning in existence, your real meaning in life, money is your God, money is what you worship, money is your center, your life will take a certain shape. Your practices, your liturgies will be centered around money. That liturgy will shape who you are. It will shape your character and what you love. It will be a liturgy that is meant to make you into the type of person who can get the most money as possible. So your life will be set up, your liturgy will be set up a way to get money on your mind, money in your heart, and money in your hands. That's what you're going to be doing all day long. Try to think about money. You have, you know, how, how to get it, how to love it, how to love the things of the world. That's how. What that's you worship money. Your life will take the shape of that. Now, here's the power of remember be have, have a transformed mind. Right? We want to have a transform. Here's the power of a transformational liturgy. If you're tempted to worship money, like most of us are, tempted to worship the things that we can see and touch and the things of this world, but you're not just going to conform to that and just go with the flow and let your life take the shape of what you worship or what you're tempted to worship money. Instead, you're going to set your life up in such a way that you have a transformational Liturgy. This is what that looks like. That means the moment your feet hit the more at the floor in the morning, you're putting God first. You're reading scripture. You're confessing your sins. You're asking for God's mercy to keep you faithful throughout the day. You're reading God-centered books. You're living in gospel-centered community with other believers. You're attending a God-centered worship gathering like ours and giving sacrificially and obediently to fund God's mission in the world through the church. Your heart is going to be in a better place than the other person that didn't have that liturgy. 
Because your liturgy is literally transforming your heart, transforming your mind, transforming what you love. So I want you to see this. What we love usually shapes our life, but then the way we set up our life has a way of working back in to change and shape our heart, what we actually love. Think about the person who's tempted to worship money and they go to a church that preaches what's called the prosperity gospel. They go into this church and a pastor gets up and a pastor tells them what you really want in life, money? Oh, well, God wants to give that to you. All you do is got to pray this prayer and give some money and do this thing and God will make you healthy and wealthy. He'll make you the head and not the tail, first and not last. Well, you know what that liturgy does? That liturgy begins to shape my heart again and makes me into, guess what? A more money-focused person. And now I'm actually using God to get what I really want, my real God, money. It's been said, sociologists have tracked this and they say that the predominant worldview of our current culture is called, this a couple big words, a few big words, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. That's most people's religion in America. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Deism believes, yeah, there's a God, but he's out there. He's real distant. He kind of set the world in such a way, kind of wound up the clock, and now he's letting the world go, and he's just kind of distant, sitting back. He's not very involved in people's lives. That's deism. Then there, it's, it's moralistic. Basically, that God that's way up in their heavens that doesn't really bother us anymore, he, he exists, but all he really wants is for us to be nice. Ultimately, religion is just being about, being about nice people. So deistic, far away, just wants us to be nice, and therapeutic means he's there for me all the time, and he's kind of my personal counselor or my personal boyfriend or my personal manager or my personal whatever I need. He's just there to kind of pet me on the face and tell me how good I am, all right? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, here's the problem. Many churches go, okay, that's the dominant religion of today, and so if we want to reach those people, we need to structure our service ar around those people to cater those people. So think of it. If I want to catch a bass, I need to put the whatever on the lure that's going to, connect, that's going to catch a bass, right? And so if, I'm need, if I need to catch a moralistic, therapeutic deist, then I need my service to be shaped around moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so what you do is when you come into a church like that, first off, it's real light and fluffy and fun, Everybody's smiling. I mean, they're fakers all get out, but they're all smiling and having a good time, right? They're going to shake your hand right away. Hey, brother, so good to see you, right? And there's going to be, you know, there's going to be free coffee and soft music playing. It's going to be like amazing. The kids' ministry is going to be amazing. There might be slides then in the kids' ministry to get them in the, in them in the door. It's going to be just amazing. Real emotional music. It's going to be all about you and your feelings and you know, how do you feel about yourself, right? The whole service is going to be catered around. The liturgy is going to be catered around this type of thinking. So people come in self-centered. Here's some emotional music that makes them feel good about themselves. Listen to a message about how to be a better version of themselves. 
told that God will help them do whatever it is they want to do. You know, we do have a Bible verse for that. Like you can do all things through Christ. So you can make that sale this week, brother. That's it. See, there might be some Jesus sprinkled into that, but at its core, it is worldly. It is the spirit of the age. And it will produce worldly people with self at the center of their lives. And the American church has been doing this for 50 years. People often choose churches based on this. I like this style. I, it's just got a vibe. I just connect with that vibe. <laughs> Rather than what brings honor to God and what makes God-centered, Jesus-loving disciples. See, on Sundays at Sacred City, we aren't baiting the hook for moralistic therapeutic deists. We aren't jumping in the culture and just floating downstream and letting the culture tell us how to worship God. No, we are going against the flow of our culture on purpose. We are publicly resisting being conformed to the world. I know you. nobody likes to confess their sins out loud. I get it. The Bible says to confess our sins to one another. That's why we do it. The Bible tells us to do it. We are seeking to be transformed by the renewal of our mind to conform to God's reality with him at the center of all things. There's one more important thing I want you to see here in this verse that should shape the way we worship together on Sunday morning. Paul says this, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now this can be confusing because wait, I thought sacrifice, I thought the sacrificial system was Old Testament and it, there's none of that anymore. We don't need that anymore. Jesus fulfilled all that. Okay, let me break it down for you. This is a direct re uh, reference to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and I wanna show you what he's doing, Okay. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices assigned by God had a particular order and placement in the worship gathering, okay? There was, everything had an important reason, okay? There were three offerings that were commonly found together. And they were, when they were found together, they always went in a certain order. You can find this in Leviticus 9 or 2 Chronicles 29. First was the guilt offering, Guilty sinners brought this offering. This offering was lit on fire and that um, was offered up as for, for forgiveness of sins, right? Following this was the ascension offering or sometimes called the burnt offering. This one was burnt in such a way that its smoke was, would rise up to God and God would welcome people into his presence. And the third was the peace offering. The guilt offering made the worshiper fit to enter into the presence of God. The second offering, the worshiper ascended to God in the smoke of an offering that was entirely consumed on the altar. And the peace offering was a tangible demonstration that God had received the worshiper and was willing to share fellowship with him in a common meal. So the, the story, the track of the service, you, went, you came in as a guilty sinner 
your sins were forgiven, your offering was accepted up into God, and then you were brought into his, his presence, and then you would share a meal with him into, in his presence. That's how the Old Testament service flowed. That's what that liturgy looked like. Now, what happens when Jesus dies on the cross for all of our sins is that he takes the place of all three of those sacrificial offerings. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He is the one that brings us into the presence of God. And by his spirit, he is the one who sits down and shares a meal with us in the Lord's Supper. So we no longer need to offer any animal sacrifices to make ourselves right with God or to enter into his presence or sit down in fellowship with him. But this is the important part. We see it right there, Romans 12. The language of sacrifice still remains in the New Testament. Present yourself as living sacrifices. The liturgy of sacrifice still remains the same. The pattern of worship still remains the same. We still come in as sinners, right? And so we still need to confess our sins, which corresponds to the guilt offering. Then we offer ourselves up to God in singing, right? As a living sacrifice in the singing and the profession of our faith and the listening and receiving of God's word, which corresponds to the ascension offering. This is when literally the New Testament says that when we worship God, that we're like, that God even kind of dwells in our presence, that we get caught up in a cloud of witnesses, that people are worshiping God all over the world, people that are with him right now and people that are in Afghanistan, people are over, that our praise ascends into the presence of God. And then we sit down with God in fellowship meal in the Lord's Supper, which corresponded to the peace offering in the Old Testament. And the heart of this whole service, right, is bookended at the beginning by a pastoral welcome and the call to worship and at the conclusions by the benediction, the sending us out back into the world to live like God's people. So another way to say this is the liturgy of a church tells a story. Every week it tells a story. The question is, does it tell the gospel story or does it tell another story? Here's the story that we tell each week. There's only two types of people in the world those who need to be reconciled to God by the person and work of Jesus Christ and those that are reconciled to God by the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you need to be reconciled to God, our, our service literally teaches you how to do that. God calls you in, you respond, and you're a sinner, so you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and confess your sins, and when you confess your sins, he absolves you of your sins. He tells you the blood of Jesus has been applied to you, and God counts no sin against you anymore. And then you respond in right worship, and then you respond in right posture by sitting down and listening to God speak to you because your life needs to be shaped. You need to be transformed in your mind and your life needs to be conformed to the image of his son. So you sit down and you hear the word of God preached to you and that's meant to shape you in a certain type of people. And then you come 
with open hands and you receive the Lord's Supper and Jesus sits down and eats with us. God fellowships with us in the service week in and week out. We get to respond and worship again and then we're sent out as his missionaries into the world. Our liturgy tells the gospel story. One of the greatest lies our enemy, the enemy of our soul has ever told is that a person must clean themselves up before they're worthy of God's love. That we must earn our reconciliation with God in some way. This lie is so powerful because it's so close to the truth. See, there is something wrong with us. We do need to be cleansed. We do need to be reconciled with God, but that doesn't happen through our own effort or through our own works. Paul says in Romans 12:1, by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice. So each week, we need to be reminded of God's mercies to us through Jesus Christ. This is why we begin each week with a pastoral welcome. Then we move on to a song that usually reminds us of our need for forgiveness or God's amazing grace. And then we confess our sins to our heavenly father together. Then we hear the absolution where God gives us assurance that we are truly forgiven. Then we respond to that grace by singing and praising our God with full hearts. From here, we profess our faith, speaking out great truths of our faith with one another. Then we hear the preaching of God's word and ask God to speak to us from it. We respond to that word by coming to him and sharing the Lord's Supper with him. We sing another song of worship, hear that benediction read over us, sending us back out into the world. The shape of our service, our liturgy, is God-centered and gospel-centered. It is not man-centered. We don't ask what do we want our service to feel like? Rather, we say, first and foremost, what has God required of us? What is holy and acceptable worship to him? What is rational and logical and tells the gospel story each and every week. That's the kind of worship he wants, and that's the kind of worship that will form us and transform us over time into people who look more and more like Jesus. See, I grew up, like I said, in that informal kind of liturgy where you know you had a few songs of fast songs, few slow songs, the pastor would preach, you have the offering, all that, and then you had this weird time of, there was an altar call. During this altar call, it was usually something like this, bow your heads and close your eyes, and the pastor would say that anybody in here that was convicted by sin and moved on by the Holy Spirit, if you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, like look up at me or raise your hand or come down to this altar, right? And Many people responded, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. 
But then there would usually be this weird, awkward time where then he would, the band would continue to play and it would get a little more emotional. And then they would say, hey, if there's anybody out there that's you know, really struggling with sin or that, or that you, know, you, you strayed away from God this week and you need to come down and, and you need to renew your relationship with Jesus or something along those lines, why don't you come down here? And the band would keep playing and then whoever it was that felt convicted, he got drunk last night or he you know, did something, did something, you know, really bad that week, well, he would come down and then he would get prayed for. And there's not ne- nothing necessarily wrong with that. We, we are going to have a time of prayer after service that people can come down. But what slowly began to happen in that liturgy is you learned, as you sit there, you learned that only like the people that need Jesus, like only the really bad sinners go down front. And so you're kind of standing there and looking around and saying, okay, who's, who's here? Who's, who's coming? Oh, yeah, yep, yep, they needed Jesus. Yep, they needed Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you're waiting, and that, you know, the band keeps playing, and the altar call keeps going, and you're like, oh, man, who's he, who's he, who's he getting after this week? And then you're like, we're waiting for it. You're looking around. Yeah, I knew it was him. There it is. It's always him. Uh, yeah, he must have got drunk this week. And the idea is, okay, this guy must have got drunk. This guy must have did drugs. This guy must have cheated on his wife. This guy looked at porn. This guy did something really bad, right? But what slowly happens into my, in my heart is there's this separation between, yeah, sinners and, you know, sinners. And, I, and, and people who, you know, we didn't cheat on our wife this week. We didn't look at porn. Our heart is slowly getting more and more proud. Sinful. Like the pastor's rarely up on stage going, if you were proud this week, if you worshiped money this week, if you focused on yourself rather than your neighbor, come to the altar. It's usually, you know, the big, the big bad sins, right? And so what happens in this church is kind of two churches begun to form. One, people that recognize themselves as sinners, and the other people that, yeah, I, don't, yeah, I needed the gospel a long time ago, but now I'm actually a pretty good person. And you never see the staff or the pastor. Like, if you're in a church like that and the pastor's wife went down front, ooh, That'll cause a church split right there, right? And it teaches this false mentality that there are certain levels of sin and levels of sinners rather than the reality that all of us walk away from our first love during the week. Our hearts are drawn away to other things all the time. And so when we come in together this morning, we're all sinners in need of grace from a great Savior, And so when we publicly confess our sins, that's what we're doing. We're saying, just like the adulterer, just like the one who's looking at pornography, just like the one who got drunk, we are all sinners and we all need the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That forms us. The way we do that forms us week in and week out. And I think one of, as I close here, one of the most striking pieces of our liturgy is the pastoral welcome. And it's striking because how countercultural it is, how counterformative it is. We live in a world where seven days a week we are told through the books that we read, the shows that we watch, our social media, our bosses, our friend, our family, even our own soul sometimes tells us this that we need to be better. We need to be happier. We need to be more confident. 
We need to be more okay by being you. Like, right? Just be you. We need to not let anyone tell us that we're wrong. Don't ever admit weakness. Don't fail. Don't be weak. See, we live in a culture obsessed with the self. We are, and in this culture, our soul's not meant to function that way. And so we are constantly tired, frustrated with ourselves. We look at the person that we're following on Instagram and going, why am I not that cute? Why is my not, my wardrobe's never on point like that. They're so fit. Look at their, they have a six pack. He's 40 and he has a six pack. How? Right? We look at other people, we measure ourselves, and we always constantly feel less than. Now, we might put on a good front on social media or to our neighbors, and we're even tempted to put on a front when we come in here today. But when you really think about it, when you really stand spiritually naked in the presence of a holy God, how do you feel about yourself? You feel worthless. You're anxious about the future. How many watched the news this week about what's going on? Travesty, tragedy in Afghanistan and felt anxious about our future. You might even wonder if God cares about you and about this world at all. See, we bring those self-obsessed thoughts. Now listen, this is what's interesting. If you're an arrogant person and you're super proud and you're always right and you're just crushing your life day in and day out, you're, 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 you're ultimately self-assessed, you're proud. But if you are actually focused on yourself so much that you feel worthless, that you feel not good enough all the time, that you're depressed and despondent all the time. That's two sides of the same coin. Both of you, both of us, both of the versions of ourselves, we're looking in at ourselves. We're either looking in and happy with what we see, or we're looking in and we're sad at what we see. But both postures of the heart are self-obsessed. And when we step into a worship gathering, we bring that self-obsessed thought into our worship. And that self-obsession can actually inhibit the right worship of God. But when a pastor gets up on a stage each week and says, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who long for the day when everything will be made good, right, and true, this church offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is meant to hit reset on our soul. This is meant to be a soul reboot to grace. This is meant to be heard not from a pastor, but from Jesus himself, who says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come rock stars, come Christian celebrities, 
Come those who are just killing it day in and day out in their normal life. You're on top of the world. You feel so much better than everybody else. Come in and worship. No, no, no. It's the exact opposite. God says throughout the Psalms, he says this in 147, two through six, the Lord builds up his people. He gathers the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. James, another place in the New Testament says, the Lord gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Think of it like this. From Monday to Saturday, we are living our lives in a spiritual war zone. We come in on Sunday tired, beat up, wounded often. We took some shots this week. We come stumbling in. And it's here where the first words we hear are not words of performance, rather words of grace. If you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, just stop doing that every time I say that. Get over it, okay? Get over it. It's never changing, okay? Listen. In Lord of the Rings, this ring of power comes to Frodo. Basically, he's got this great mission ahead of him. He's got this great um, challenge that he's going to have to take. He's carrying this ring, and they start out in the first book, and they start out on this quest, right? They start out, uh, start out on this mission, and it's exhausting, and they've got dangers all around them, and, it, and it's wearing them out, and it's wearing really heavy on Frodo. But then what happens is they, they get confronted on this place called Weathertop. They get confronted by their spiritual foes, okay? The, the ring wraiths, right? They get confronted by, you could say, evil spirits. And Frodo takes a mortal wound, Okay, Frodo is stabbed and he's wounded and he's going to die. Death is certain for him, right? The very beginning, you're reading this book and you're like, he's about to die and there's 600 pages left. What's about to happen here, right? And here's what happens. So he's already tired from his journey. He does, he's actually not, he's not made of the type of stuff to actually accomplish his journey. He's not tough enough yet. And now he gets taken out by the first spiritual opposition that he experiences, Okay, and here's what happens. In essence, Frodo takes this mortal wound and then wakes up in Rivendell. And Rivendell is a place where the elves live, but Rivendell is a place that evil hasn't gotten to yet. The curse is not found in Rivendell. Rivendell is a place of healing. It's a place of peace. It's a place of shalom. And so the elves have the power, just barely, but they have the power to heal Frodo, even though he'll have the scar for the rest of his life and he'll bear some of the pains from it. Listen, all week long, we're carrying heavy burdens. All week long, we're experiencing spiritual battles. We might not even be aware of it. And many times we take mortal wounds. We take shots that we don't think we're going to live from. And the the point is, on Sunday morning, when you come in here, you wake up in Rivendell. This is a place of peace. 
This is a place of shalom. This is a place of protection that God by his spirit is here removing burdens, healing wounds, strengthening our weak knees, strengthening our weak backs, giving us new character and new virtues to send us back out on the mission. Oh, I could talk a long day about this. They couldn't stay in Rivendell. They couldn't stay there. The mission had to be accomplished. They got recouped. They got rejuvenated. They got healed up. And they got sent back out. This is what we do on Sunday morning. Jesus meets us. He treats our wounds week in and week out. He feeds us and gives nourishment to our souls. And that's why week in and week out, we share the Lord's table together. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the way you created us, that we are shaped by our habits, we're shaped by our liturgies. I thank you for the way you've revealed how we should worship you in your word. And I pray even now that people who are far from you, they hear the gospel, they don't have to become better, they need to lean on Jesus Christ, they need to believe on Jesus Christ. I pray even now you give them that faith and you'd bring healing to their soul. And those who... They come in wounded, with a mortal wound maybe. They come in tired. They come in exhausted. Would you restore their soul like you promised to do, Jesus? And even as all of us come hungry, come open-handed, come humble to the Lord's table, would you meet us here and fellowship with us? Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed and the day before you were going to be crucified, You sat down at the Passover meal and you said this, you took the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And you took the cup of wine and you said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. And so we obey you this morning and we come with open hands to receive your body and to receive your blood. Would you feed our souls? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.